Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Before Jacko comes up and shares a word, um, if you haven't seen him already, he's wearing high-vis, um, hard to miss. Uh, we're going to be reading from the Bible. Um, uh, I'm reading from the NIV, uh, which is one of the Bibles we have at the back. So if you have your Bible, um, please turn with me to Genesis 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are free Bibles at the back of the service, uh, back of the church. Um, there's also Bibles in different languages. So feel free, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one. If you do have a Bible, feel free to take one for a friend. Um, and if you ha- want a Bible in a different language, they, they are available as well. Um, and if you're looking for a Bible in specific language, just let us know and we'll try and source one down for you as well. So we're going to be reading from Genesis to begin with, um, Genesis 1, 26 through Genesis 2, and then we're also going to be reading in Ephesians, but I'll start off with Genesis. So Genesis 1, here's a clue, it's the very first page of the Bible, um, verses 26 through to 217. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing fruit plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and in the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he had put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river, a river watering the ground flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon. It, I don't know what that is. Pishon? Uh, It winds through the entire of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. Tigris. Tigris, there we go. All right, awesome. Um, It runs along the side of Ashur. And the fourth river is Euphrates. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. All right. Uh, the second reading comes from Ephesians um, 2, verse 8 through 10. This is in the New Testament. So Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is from the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, for which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen. And here's Jacko. Thank you, Ruth, for reading. Um, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. Uh, first Sunday after Easter. Um, and uh, if you haven't met you yet, I'm Simon. People call me Jacko around here. I'm the lead pastor of this church. Um, we start a new series today. I think it's going to come up on the screen. There you go. Work and worship, reconnecting the daily grind to the glory of God. Uh, that is kind of why I'm wearing a high-vis vest, because, you know, workers wear high-vis vests, right? Isn't that true? Yeah, no. Um, and as you came in, you would have seen some, you know, cones and things like that and bits and pieces. Anyway, we're going to talk about work, work for the next four weeks. And before I start, I'm going to ask you to chat to the person next to you about this kind of question in terms of work satisfaction, okay? We're thinking about work satisfaction, whether you work and it's a paid job, whether you work and it's a voluntary job, whether you work at home, in an office, on the street, wherever you work, here it is. How satisfied are you with your work, okay? And here's the, here's the you know, thing. Five, five, five is very satisfied, okay? Here's the spectrum. Five, very satisfied, all the way down to one, very unsatisfied, okay? So I want you to turn to the person next to you. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe you could ask them, what do you do for work? And how satisfied are you with that work that you do? Does that make sense? Five, very satisfied. One, very unsatisfied. Go, I'll give you a few minutes. Go, have a, have a chat to the person next to you. Have a go. All right, everyone. Let me pull you back together. Uh, let's 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 do this. Let's let's get some data on this. Um, who's who's a five? Who's a five? Just a couple. Oh yeah, there you go. Who's a four? Who's a four? Yeah, a few more hands going up. Who's a three? Sort of boring, neutral. You know, don't really know what you think. No, I'm just joking. Uh, two? Who's a two? Oh gee, yeah, right. And who, who needs some counselling after church today? Who's a one? Who's a one? Anyone game to say one? Just me. No, 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 no. There you go. Um, excellent, excellent. You, I do love you guys, but you're hard work. You're hard work. You're hard work. Um, we're, we're in this series. We're looking at work for the next four weeks. And... Uh, Work's an interesting subject, um, it's a big subject, and I, I don't claim that over the next four weeks that we'll be able to answer everything about work, there's so much of it, but the reality is that if, you, um, if you're a worker and uh, you sort of do, you, you know, you travel to, to and from work each day, and if you, um, you know, do a job that's likely sort of represented in this room, it's likely that you're going to spend half of your waking week at work. 
Um, that's just the reality. A lot of our time is spent at work. And again, that can be work that is paid work. It can be work that is voluntary work. Um, work consumes a big part of our lives, um, and it's worth us taking some time out to think about it. Um, have a listen to this email. Um, if you're part of the community here at City Light Church North Adelaide, I, I put a, a request out um, a few weeks back on our sort of internal communication system, Slack, um, asking, you know, sort of giving you a heads up. We're doing a series on work. What are your questions? What are your comments around work? I received an email from one of you, um, which is very lovely, um, and, and in it, it suggests some of the things that um, the email suggested some of the things that might be good to cover in this series as we look at work. Have a listen to it and see whether any of the issues raised resonate with you. Listen to this. Hi, Jacko. That's me. Um, keen for the series on work. That's good. Yeah, there we go. I reckon, the person says, I reckon I find it difficult to decide what I should spend my time doing. I'm pretty sure that work has intrinsic value and more than just in as much as providing me with networks for evangelism. But at the same time, I know that all work that doesn't spread the gospel is ultimately fruitless. If all work apart from evangelism is fruitless, why don't we all quit our jobs and become evangelists? And yet deep down, I don't really believe that that is the best thing for everyone to do. The good ordering of society, stewardship of our planet, caring for the physical needs of people in our communities, and the pursuit of knowledge and discovery are all important things, surely. The risk of doing that, though, is that I'll settle for a lukewarm Christianity, and perhaps I'll drift to finding my security in work, not in the Lord. What should I do? Does it even matter that I make the most of my gifts and my talents. Does what I do for work matter at all anyway? Again, I'm looking forward to the series, In Christ, blah, blah, blah. There you go. I think it's a pretty good summary, right, of many of the issues that we face regarding work and following Jesus. Do you agree? Like, there's some issues there. Is anything other than sharing the gospel, that's evangelism, is anything other than that fruitless? Or is it important to be at work serving communities, pursuing art, music, gaining knowledge, making discoveries? Are they important things as well? How, how can I do that, all those other things, without you know, my focus of my life being on work rather than being on Jesus? How do I even choose what to do? I mean, is God more like the fire and brimstone tele-evangelist who is only interested in the number of souls that I can win for Christ? Or is God a bit more like a pushy parent who wants me to make the best use of my education opportunities and the gifts I have? And so we come to a four-week series on the topic of work. Now, it's a slightly unusual topic for us here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Our normal practice, if you're around here, normally is to systematically work our way through books of the Bible, allowing the author of the Bible to set the agenda, and then we just face topics as they arise. The Bible wasn't written by God based on topics, but once in a while, we take a little bit of time out to look at what the whole Bible says about a subject. So for the next four weeks, we're going to do just that. And we're going to think about work because it is such a big deal. Most of us are going to spend 80 to 100,000 hours at work. Can you believe that? That's, that seems like a lot of time. 
So if we're going to spend eighty dollars to $100,000 at work, we ought to know what the heck we're doing, yeah? So today we start work and worship, reconnecting the daily grind to the glory of God because we also want to be a church that avoids an unhealthy disconnection between the work we do, dare I say it, Monday to Friday, all of that's changing, right? People are doing shift work and working all the time. We want, to make a, we want to avoid making an unhealthy connection that the things we do here on Sunday are the kind of God work things and then the stuff we do Monday to Friday is some kind of other work. We want to re-embrace, we want to harness the reality that actually our work matters to God and God matters to our work, not just here but all the time. So that's what we're going to explore. This week, we're going to think about how we were made for work. Next week, why we hate work. Um, maybe that's, if you're number two, come back next week. You'll sort of be helped out there. Number three, week three, um, why, um, is there any hope for work? And week four, I need to do some more work on that one to get you a catchy title. But it'll be something sort of summary of work. There you go. Um, this morning, I really just want to look at four verses in Genesis chapter one. Um, and then we're going to leap elsewhere in the Bible. So do have your Bible open in front of you. Genesis chapter one, very easy to find. Page one of your Bible but also be ready to flick around because um, you're going to need to do that. What we're going to look at today is the goodness of work, the responsibility of work, and the necessity of work, and then a couple of thoughts as we close. So firstly, the goodness of work. Uh, Look with me, page uh, page 1 of the Bible, and uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 2, 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. If you look at page one of the Bible and you look at the very first words of the Bible, verse one of chapter one, if you go back there quickly, within the first five words of the Bible, we meet God as a worker. Have a look at that. In the beginning, God, say it with me, created. God worked. You know, fifth word of the Bible, God created, God worked. So the God of the Bible we discover in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 27 is a worker and that makes the God of the Bible so unlike the other gods that the nations around God's original people Israel kind of believed in or even the Greeks believed in or the eastern deities. Like God gets his hands dirty. The God of the Bible gets his hands dirty. He's a worker. And then God made us, humanity, male and female, in his image. And therefore we model God in his world. And God entrusts to humanity, you and me, the task of work in this world. Now God could have really easily, right, when he created the world, he could have made everything complete and ordered and structured as it ought to be. So he could have, you know, every discovery he could have made straight up, every technological advance he could have sorted out, every house he could have built, every garden he could have trimmed, neatly tidied up everything. But he didn't. God is a worker. He gets his hands dirty. He made the universe and he entrusted his work to people, men and women, 
to work in the world. So work is good and there is dignity to our work and the stuff of everyday life. The Lord Jesus Christ said, my father is working to this day and I too am working. Jesus himself worked with his own hands. He was a carpenter. And that in itself was a radical challenge to the Greco-Roman culture into which Jesus came. God came into the world, God came to work as a laborer. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote a whole lot of the New Testament, he too worked with his hands. And many of you know he was a, a tanner, a tent maker, which was a not, yeah, tanning was not a pretty job. It was a messy, dirty, smelly job. And yet he, he, he tanned and he tented, partly in order to just provide for himself, but also to allow himself to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I think this feature... The goodness of work, the dignity of work, makes sense of much of our lives. You know, one of the things we believe here at North Adelaide, City Light Church North Adelaide, is that God word, God's word explains God's world. The Bible helps us make sense of the world in which we live. And we find this on the opening part, page of the Bible. I mean, I don't know about you, but we, I like to make things. Anyone else like to make things? I like to make things. We love to create stuff. I've got a shed, well, sort of got a shed at home. Probably not a shed in some people's minds, but it's a shed, and I've got a bench, and I've got some offcuts of timber, and I make stuff. It doesn't look very good, but I love it. I love it. There's a sense of get the saw out, which I know when I work out which end to use, and I saw some stuff, and I cut some stuff, and I drill some stuff, and I paint some stuff, and then I go, look, everyone, and my family just goes, what is that? <laughs> they aren't satisfied, but I am. I look at it, I put it on the mantelpiece. If I had a pool room, it would go in the pool room. We love to invent, we love to build, we love to organize and design and order. We get satisfaction from a job well done. I mean, why is unemployment or underemployment such a challenge to us? It's because it really impacts our sense of self. We were made to work. You know, why is it that something as simple as cleaning the bathroom or ironing the clothes, two things which I haven't done for a very long time, or preparing dinner. Why, when we do those things, are we sort of, there's this sense of pleasure and satisfaction after a job well done? We enjoy work. Um, some years ago, Roy Morgan, um, an organisation here in Australia who does like lots of surveys and polling of the population, did a survey in Australia polling 10,000 Australians and asking them about their job satisfaction. And guess what criteria they used? Five was, you know, very satisfied. One, very unsatisfied. The results were 75% of Australians rank their work as either five or four. Most people are really satisfied with their work. We know there is something good and satisfying and dignified about work. God is a worker. We're made in God's image. We're made to work. And we know, don't we, that enforced or unending leisure is ultimately bland and boring and even demoralizing. I'm about to go, this is really interesting, isn't it? I'm, I'm doing a talk, a talk on work, not a work on talk, um, a, a talk on work today, and then tomorrow, guess what I'm doing? Going on holidays. 
and I'm never coming back. No, um, <laughs> because if I did that, I'd be bored. I'm looking forward to a week away on the York Peninsula with my family, but I'm keen to, I'm, well, maybe I'm, yeah, I'm keen to come back to work because work is good. Now, brothers and sisters and friends, I want us to hold on to this idea of the goodness of work and everyday life stuff as we move through this series over the next few weeks, because next week and probably each week, we will have to, we will see that work in this world is, is sometimes feels futile and frustrating and a bit flawed. Next week in particular, Brother Tran will show us that God deliberately frustrates our work. Now, don't miss that one, by the way. Come back for it. But in all of this, we've got to hold on to the fact that work is good in God's creation. Just before we do pivot to our second point, though, it's worth remembering that work was also part of creation before the fall, before everything sort of went pear-shaped. Um, Tim Keller, in his really good book, a, a book worth reading actually on work, um, which is called Every Good Endeavor, if you want to note that one down, Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, he says this, quote, in the beginning then God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do but God was, but was beneath the great God himself. Here's the key. The book of Genesis leaves us with a striking truth Work was part of paradise. Work was part of creation before the fall. Work will be part of the new creation when Jesus returns and makes all things new, when heaven and earth come together. Work is not a consequence of our sin. Work is not a punishment for our rejection of God. Work is good. So tomorrow morning, right, when the alarm goes off at 5 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. or whenever you decide to get out of bed when the alarm goes off, I want you to say to yourself, work is good. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work. We go with a spring in your step because work is good. Jesus worked. Paul worked. Work is good. Is that, is that clear? Work is good. Secondly then, the responsibility of work. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, right at the bottom of page 1 in the Bibles we've got at the back or somewhere else probably in your Bible. But The word says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish, of, uh, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This verse here shows us that God, the living God, entrusted to Adam and Eve, to humanity, the responsibility of ruling over God's creation under him. God is a ruler. God is a worker. Humanity is to rule and work under him. We're delegated a job by God and we're accountable to God. This created order is, is given to humanity, given to us on loan, on trust, for us to care for and to steward under him. We are to develop the world, design it, realize its potential. I love it in Genesis 1. We, we can't talk about it in detail today, but in Genesis 1, it's sort of like God gives us the world and there's a bit to play with, but there's all this kind of potential in the earth for us to open up and design and explore and to cause to come out and flourish. It's not like God had sort of said, here it is, done and dusted. We've got a sense in which we can till the soil and grow and, and potential. 
We're given this responsibility, though, under God to rule and care for the world. And we see the same responsibility in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, over the page. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. So our work is to be done responsibly under God. We are accountable to God at all times. That's why Paul in the New Testament says to slaves and to servants, Colossians 3.23, that they are to work as if working unto the Lord. So it may be, right, that on paper you work for the school or for the engineering firm or for the government or for the clinic or for the, you name it, but they're your employer on paper, they pay your wage, they pay your expenses, accounts, whatever it might be, but you are and I am working in God's creation. It's all been given to us by him on loan, on trust. So whatever position or role we have, we're ultimately accountable to God. Doesn't that change like your end of financial year review that might be coming up in a little while's time? God is our boss. We're all accountable to him. And Paul in 1 Corinthians tells that each each of us have been assigned a position by God in his goodness and in his sovereignty. Now it may be, right, that the position he has assigned you is a position that you enjoy. It might be a position that you don't really enjoy. It might be a position that you don't feel like is best suited to you and to your talents at the time. But in God's sovereignty, he's placed you there And we're responsible to him to rule over that patch, to do that job well, accountable to him. Now it's important here to say that our responsibility with the work that we've been given by God isn't just a responsibility to God himself, although that is true. We also have a responsibility to others, and in particular a responsibility how we use the proceeds of the work that we do. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 in the New Testament and verse 28 and then we're going to jump after that to 1 Timothy uh, 5. Come with me, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. We have a responsibility to God, we've also got a responsibility to to others. Have a look, chapter 4 verse 28 of Ephesians. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Turn over, go to the right, a few letters of Paul to chapter 5, verse 8 of 1 Timothy, where we read chapter 5, verse 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially their own household has denied the faith faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 18. Come here with me uh, to these verses just over the page. Command those, Paul says, who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. The letter of Paul to the Ephesians, the letter of Paul to Timothy and to Ephesus as well, uh, they're letters written to Christians. 
They're letters written to men and women just like us who have come to place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ of Good Friday, the Lord Jesus Christ of Easter Sunday. They've turned from, from thieving and, and living for themselves. They've turned by the Spirit to now live for Jesus vertically. But there's now a responsibility horizontally to believers around us to share with believers the proceeds of our labours, of our work, to care for elderly relatives, young children, widows, orphans in the church. And if we find ourselves blessed by God and we are wealthy, to use our wealth responsibly in doing good for other people. So there's a responsibility to work. We are made to work. There's a responsibility within our work to God. There's also a responsibility beyond our work to be generous and ready to share. I reckon that's an amazing transformation that can happen to us, and even tomorrow. You know, I'm an engineer. I'm actually not an engineer. I'm the lead pastor of City Light Church, North Adelaide, but I'm an engineer. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this job so that I can take part in making things work in this creation of yours. I'm a teacher. Thank you, Lord, for entrusting me with the lives of young people that I can help them grow to be great contributors to our society and to your creation. Thank you, Lord, that I'm a psychiatrist. Not that Adele's feeling like that right now, but thank you, Lord, that I'm a psychiatrist, that I can impact and help the mental health of men and women in my city, that they may be more able to be part of our community and contribute to the lives around them, and so on and so on and so on. Once again, we need to think carefully about this point, the responsibility of work, because as we will see next week, the fall impacts that. Radically altered, actually. But nonetheless, just like I want you to hold on to the reality that work is good and dignified, I also want us to hold on to the responsibility of work as we see it here. There's a responsibility to God, Responsibility to others. Let's pivot to the third point then, the necessity of work. The goodness of work, the responsibility of work, now the necessity of work. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. You can come back to page 2 of the Bible if you want to, but here it says this. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. So Adam and Eve are to work for their food. God gives them plants for their nourishment. And there's a sense here, even in Genesis chapter 1, that, that there is work needed if life is to be sustained on the earth. And that explains so much of the advice that we find in the New Testament regarding sort of work and toil and provision and sustenance for life. Um, So come with me. Sorry, I'm making you flick all over the place, right? You've gone back to the beginning. Now we're going back to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, here we go. Um, Chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians and verse 14, where Paul says, he's speaking to Christians, we urge you, Brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, lazy. Turn with me next Thessalonians to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 6 to 11. 
Paul writes, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you've received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some, of, some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. There you go. Now a bit of background. Paul's writing to a church, First and Second Thessalonians, a group of Jesus followers who were so fixated somewhat rightly, on the second coming of Jesus and the new creation to come with Jesus, that they were downplaying the necessity of laboring, of working, of toiling in order to earn a crust, in order to eat. You know, Jesus is coming back soon, they said. We can just chill out and not bother with this kind of work thing. To which Paul says, if you won't work, you won't eat. I feel like saying that to my children, although one's in the room right now. There you go. <laughs> Stella, Stella said to me, would you say, would you say, did you say to me before, oh, I rate my work as a number five because I don't do anything. Is that what you said? Something like that? There you go. Um, <laughs> that is something we'll have to remedy when we get home. Um, yeah. But Paul is saying work is necessary for our food and for our well-being. Work is necessary for providing for our families and the families of others. Work is necessary for our generosity towards those who are genuinely in need. In 1 Timothy, we also we find that work is necessary for the setting apart of Bible teachers to teach the word. We'll get to that for a long time, another time. No, we'll get to that later. But to put it crudely, right, we work to feed our faces. Maybe that's the quote for our socials this week. We work to feed our faces. We work to live. And Paul says, if you will not work, you will not eat. I think sometimes, right, we can, maybe because of our educational status or our upbringing in the church and things like that, we can sort of get a little bit super spiro, a little bit refined about how we talk about our work. You know, no, I'm no. I'm just, I don't work just to make a living. You know, I'm very important to the way the world works and there's a real sense of importance to what I do, you know. We work to feed our faces. It's as simple as that. There's a goodness to it. There's a responsibility as we do it. But all that stuff about, you know, fulfilling our potential in our work, it's not there. We learn today that before the fall, there's a real goodness to work. There's a responsibility in the work that we do. And there's a necessity to work. I just want to make two observations and then we'll close and then we'll carry on with the rest of our gathering. The first observation is this. Let's not be snobs 
when it comes to our work. Let's not be snobs when it comes to the work, our work. If there is a goodness, if we have a responsibility, if there is a necessity to work, and if all work is worthy and dignified by God, if it's delegated to God, to each one of us to do particular work, and designed by God for us to eat so that the world goes round and there's food for everyone to eat, there is no area of work that is somehow of higher value or more significant than another kind of work. And might I suggest that this challenges the view that we often have in the Western world today and also how it challenged the culture of Jesus and Paul in the first century. Somehow we've developed this idea that there's some work that's more significant than other work. And you know what? That is profoundly Greco-Roman in thinking. It's not Christian thinking. It's not gospel thinking. Listen to one famous Greek, Homer. Listen to this, see if this resonates. Quote, the gods cherish the elite. They require that slaves should ensure leisure for them, craftsmen surrounding them with convenience and luxury. Or Aristotle, another Greek. Nothing against Greeks, by the way, Georgie. Um, Quote, the citizen of the state must not lead the life of mechanic or tradesman, for such a life is ignoble and against all virtue. Does that resonate? That we've sort of developed this idea of there are some jobs which are more important than others. The, The gospel radically challenges that sort of work casteism, right? The sort of Greek thinking that lies behind so much of the Hindu caste system and much of our snobbish attitude to work in the West, which many of us have grown up with in our homes and we'll certainly hear about in the media and in the workplace. You find it everywhere. This, this is a challenge. All work is good. All work has responsibility. All work is necessary. The great danger in a church like ours with a cultural makeup of like ours is that we see the engineer, the doctor, the physio or the professor as somehow superior because they have a qualification. My role is so superior. Rubbish. That's snobbery. We've just bought the Greek worldview. Here's a, here's a test, right? Here's a test. It's called the snob test. There you go. We'll coin it the snob test. If you want to check if you're a bit of a snob, I'm not going to ask for feedback on this one, by the way, so you can just do it yourself. If you want to check if you're a bit of a snob when it comes to work, here's the test. If you were made redundant tomorrow, would you be prepared to work at anything and still think it's of equal value? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to repent, brothers and sisters, of such snobbery and elitism. All roles are of equal value. I remember hearing a Bible talk many, many, many years ago when I was a uni student um, at Media Conference in Sydney by a guy named Philip Jensen. Um, Philip was speaking about our just our careerism. Um, you know, how we're just like just driven by jobs and 
qualification and position and prestige and things like that. And I remember him, you know, I was in Sydney um, and he, was, he sort of said, you know, next time you're in the CBD of Sydney, I want you to walk down George Street. Uh, George Street, big street that goes down the middle of Sydney. High-rise buildings of all the big multinational companies, you know, KPMG, Rabobank, you know, you name them, they're all there. He said, next time you walk down and you see someone cleaning the street, you see someone emptying the trash cans into a truck, he says, I want you to look at them and say, wow, they are making probably a better contribution to our society than the high-flying finance accounting gurus sitting up in their nice corner offices on George Street. Because they are the ones who in many ways are keeping us alive. If no one picks up the trash, disease comes and we'll probably all get pretty sick and die. I was rebuked by that again this week, I shared that. All roles are of equal value. Let's repent, brothers and sisters, of any snobbishness when it comes to work. May it not be so here. The second observation is kind of related. Not only should we not be snobby about what work people do as Christians, the world will be snobby about that. Let us not be snobby about it. We shouldn't. Here's the next one. Let's not be too super spiritual when it comes to work either. Let's not be snobs and let's not be too super spiritual. What on earth am I talking about when I say don't be super spiro about work? Some people in recent times have used language of calling in relation to our work. I've just got this calling to be a, I'm trying not to look at anyone in the room. I've got a calling to be a teacher. I'm looking at the, I'm a call to be a dancer on the back of the wall there. Um, I just feel like God, you know, for for me to fulfill my potential, he's calling me to be a lead pastor of the church. The language of vocation, right, or calling, was picked up in the 1500s and 1600s by the reformers, you know, those guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Cranmer and all our good friends, um, was picked up in the 15 and 1600s to correct this wrong, this misunderstanding that had crept into the church and society that, you know, that priests and ministers and church workers have some kind of higher calling than your average, you know, worker in the street. The reformers argued, no, everybody has a calling or a vocation that are all of equal value, that that work done responsibly is good. And they spoke about all people, priest, plumber, poet, professor. They all had a, a vocation from God. But the language has been taken by some in more recent times to say that God has for you, Michael. God has for you, Crystal. God has for you, Nick, just to pick on a few people, that God has for each one of us a particular, unique calling that is yours and yours alone. That you, with your particular set of gifts and abilities, can only fulfill. It's just for you. Have you heard that? Sort of picked up in that language of you've got to fulfill your potential. I had dinner with someone earlier this year after listening to a Bible talk and I said to them, what is your greatest fear? And this person said that I don't reach my full potential. It's so enslaving. 
Brothers and sisters, the Bible never speaks of calling in this way, of fulfilling your full potential. It never speaks of a job that is fitted for you uniquely and particularly. So here's the data, right? 51 times we read of the word calling in the New Testament. 46 of them are used to speak of the calling for us to be turned and become Christians. That's how it's connected to, the calling to Christ. 46 of them. Four of them are used to remind us that we're called to live a holy life, a godly life, devoted to God, devoted to Christ, to live in peace. So what's that? 46 about your calling to be a Christian, four called to live a holy life, you know, set apart for Jesus. What does that leave us with? Anyone? Well done, Trent, good work. Yeah, one, there you go. Um, you get the door prize, there you go. The only, the, the other, the one remaining one turns up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20. Here's your last Bible verse. Flick with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 20. I trust you this is the end, and if I break it, you can take me out the back afterwards. Anyway, um, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20. Uh, in this particular moment, Paul the Apostle, who's writing this to the church at Corinth, says it's about a calling to the station to which you've been appointed, to where you are. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. In the context, right, for Paul, some people have been placed in the station as slave. Some single, some people married, others circumcised, other people uncircumcised. So what Paul is saying, what matters is not, not the, the broad station in which you have been appointed by God, whether a plumber or a banker or a doctor or a teacher or an actor or an actuary. What matters for Paul, what matters to God is that you live out your calling as a child of God in a holy way in that particular station that you're in. It has nothing to do with God having a special job for you as an individual. What matters is living for Jesus and loving like Jesus wherever you are. You know what, the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, is far, 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 far more concerned with how you live and how you work where he has placed you. God isn't particularly interested in what work you do, what work I do. I think that challenges our culture. It challenges perhaps our Christian culture. Let me close. The Bible tells us that all work is good. The Bible also tells us that God is a worker and that God is still working to this day. I love that. It's not like God just kind of worked and got the creation going and then sort of found a banana lounge in a cocktail and just sort of laid down and goes, Ooh, just leave it to you guys, I'll come back later. God is still working. That's the doctrine of providence. He is still at work today. And we as image bearers of God, made in his image, we are made for work. There is a goodness to work. There's a dignity to work. And we are responsible in all the work that we do. We're responsible to God 
And we're responsible with the proceeds we get from our work for the good of our families, for those around us. And we're called here that we need to work. And the Bible tells us the true satisfaction will come when we are found working for God, committed to the work that he's given us to do, pursuing holy lives in whatever station he's placed us. Employed, unemployed. I realise today I've not said a lot about unemployment or underemployment and I realise that's a pain for some of us in this room. But we were made to work and I want to encourage us, we ought to, we ought to love our work. But as we do work, let's not be snobs all workers of equal value. And let's not be too super spiro about it. Let's just get on living for Jesus and loving like Jesus in whatever we're doing. But there's more to say on work. Um, come back next week. I won't be here. <laughs> I'll be holidaying. No. Come back next week and the week after and the week after. There's lots to say. But let's pray, shall we? And ask God to change us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the high calling of work and thanks for the high calling of all work. Father, we do come before you this morning in humility and we do repent of perhaps our very worldly attitudes to work. Thank you for the goodness of your word and how your word informs us, instructs us, shapes us. Father, we want to be people who, who live in light of your grace and according to your word. And Father, we realise that there are always times when we stray from that. So Father, we just pray this morning, would you forgive us for thinking about work in a wrong way? We thank you for the goodness of work and for all the people who work to make the world work in all kinds of ways. And we pray for workers. Father, we pray for brothers and sisters among us this morning who are out of work or who feel like they're underworked and we recognise the real challenge that that is to our sense of self and how that is hard as we seek to provide for not only ourselves but for those around us do provide work for our brothers and sisters in need But whether we are employed or unemployed, help us to work as unto the Lord with a deep sense of responsibility to you, Father, and to others. Make us generous, Father. We pray that we would, you'd give us work so that we can provide, that we can eat, share, and as we are able, with the proceeds of our work to be generous. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you'd make us a really generous church, a hard-working church, not a snobby church. And so, Father, we ask all this this morning in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. 
For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church/northadelaide.